Hello, I'm Jason Ball, News Director at KTLA 5 News in Los Angeles, and this is the News Director's Office. Producer Bobby is alongside as always. Hello. Good to be here. So we're here to welcome a new member of the KTLA family, Mel Robbins, talk show host of the Mel Robbins Show. Welcome. Hello. Thank you. We're so excited to have you now in daytime as part of our uh, news and uh, programming lineup on on KTLA. So yeah, welcome. Me too. Thank you. I can't wait. This, I'm all, we're here. I, mean, I don't even know what I'm waiting for. <laughs> yeah. This is happening. So let's start with a quote from you. Oh God. Uh, mm. Don't be afraid to start over. This time you aren't starting from scratch. You're starting from experience. That's pretty profound here in the beginning of the year when people make resolutions and decide they're going to change things and and do things differently. But what what does that mean to you? Well, one of the things that has been really interesting about doing the work I do helping people is when you come uh, face to face with millions of people, which I have in my work Mm -hmm. as a motivational speaker with the, the books that I sell with the social media presence that we have, you start to see themes. Mm -hmm. So we all want to think that we are individual and we actually are. There's not a single, uh, person alive that has an iris that matches anybody else's. You are a thousand percent unique. You have a unique purpose in your life. And your job is to figure out uh, what that purpose is. But the single theme that I see the most with human beings is how much we self-sabotage. That there are patterns of behavior and patterns of thinking that every human being on the planet has. And they are very easy to identify. So what that quote means to me is it's addressing one of the biggest self-sabotaging patterns that is around failure. And people believing that if you take a risk, which is a skill, by the way, it's a skill that you learn to be able to take a risk. It's a skill to be able to step into the unknown, but that if it doesn't work out how you think it's going to, or you face rejection or criticism, or it fails in some way, that somehow that means you are some kind of uh, pathetic asshole that's never going to be successful. So you give up. I see this level of resignation all the time. And so I often use the idea of reframing as a tool to help people move past the self-imposed obstacles. Because the truth is every single failure that you have had has given you the experience that you needed Mm -hmm. in order to be successful at the thing that you're supposed to be doing either next or down the road. I would never be a daytime talk show host and be successful at it if I hadn't 12 years ago hosted a horrible radio show for Sirius on the Lime Network that thank God nobody listened to. (laughs) It failed miserably and I didn't even get paid to do it. So not only did the show fail, but I failed. And so I remember being so embarrassed, which I don't even know why I should be embarrassed because it's not like anybody knew about the damn show. It was the most boring call and advice show you would have ever listened to in your entire life. But here's what I learned. I learned something so valuable that you can't read in a book. Advice is so damn boring to listen to. Hmm. What people listen to are stories. Mm. What people are drawn to is authentic personalities. They don't want to listen to some expert waxing on and on and on. Every one of us fell asleep in, in, in an intellectual class. You identify and connect with people that are vulnerable, that are authentic, that are unscripted, and you identify and remember stories. You don't remember advice. And so I never would have learned that reading that in a book. 
I had to fail on my face. That was the experience that I needed. Uh-huh. CNN is another one. So I was an on-air commentator for CNN for three years doing social and poli- uh, not political, thank God, social <laughs> and legal commentary. And it was a really incredible experience because it was during all of these massive social justice cases. Mm-hmm. So the Trayvon Martin case, the, uh, the, the stuff going on in Ferguson, Freddie Brown, Eric Garner. And it was a real honor to be uh, part of the team covering those stories, just like you were covering them. Here's what I learned being there. Because, again, at the end of three years, I, I'm still I'm not there. So one could say that somehow I failed because I'm not there. But the truth is I needed that experience to learn a number of things. First of all, I needed to learn how to read a teleprompter. I needed to learn how to talk down to a break. I needed to learn how to have an opinion in 20 seconds flat. I needed to learn how to respond to breaking news. I needed to learn how to be on a set and and treat people like human beings and know everybody's name. And I needed to learn the most important thing that I learned during my tenure at CNN were issues related to bias and privilege that as a white woman growing up in the Midwest, I never had to deal with. And it was in covering those cases and more importantly, talking to my black colleagues about what they were dealing with, with their kids and the kinds of things that they were thinking about, their concerns. I remember one moment, I'll tell you a quick story that was, you know, and look, I went to Dartmouth. I went to Boston College Law School. I was a public defender in Manhattan. If anybody thought that they were woke, it was me. <laughs> but I was reading all that shit in a book. Yeah. It's a whole nother thing. And this is something else that I had to learn. People don't change their opinions about things until it becomes personal. Uh-huh. And what happened for me is racism bias privilege became so personal because in covering these cases around the clock with colleagues of all colors and backgrounds and religious beliefs and having friends that were personally dealing with issues of bias you know there's a story where one of my really really good friends um joey jackson who is still there as a legal analyst uh I, his son had gotten into an incredible school uh, down in the Carolinas. And I said, congratulations, are you so excited? And he said, yeah, but my wife's really nervous. And I said, why is she nervous? And he said, well, you know, he's a black boy going down to the South, not to say anything bad about mm-hmm. the South, mm-hmm. but he's not in New York City anymore. And I'm really, and, it, and it was the first moment that I thought, holy cow, Chris and I... Mm-hmm. Don't even think about this. That's what the word privilege means. Uh And that was a moment that was such an awakening for me that was 45 years too long in coming. But I think that we, in our lives, you are going down the path and you are collecting experiences and skills and relationships that fundamentally shape you as a human being. And so there is no such thing as failure. If you had a horrible, abusive relationship and you are out of it, you did not fail. You survived something. Uh The important thing is, can you see the message in the mess and learn from it? And that's what the whole show is about. It's really people that are in a gigantic hairball of a mess in their life and they're struggling. And because when you're in it, it's so hard to see your way out of it. And that's my job. I didn't know we were going to talk about this today, but you, you brought it up. So um, 
I believe that bias and privilege is the biggest social problem that we have in our country. That and poverty, yeah. But poverty but is impacted by bias related. and privilege, yeah. yeah. And I don't know how to help move that conversation along because you're right and, and you, everyone has to have a an, an experience of understanding that how I am treated and how you are treated and how Bobby is treated and how someone else it's it's not conscious yes I don't think and that, oh it's a thousand percent not, well there so first so, well, of all yes, we'll be very clear they're racist <laughs> yes. very conscious about the discrimination <laughs> right. that they are you know spewing out of their mouths and that they're um they're 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 behaving uh, in terms of the way that they discriminate against people and the opinions that they have. Um, I agree with you, and one of the things that I hope, because I think we've gotten to a point in our society where people don't talk anymore and they don't they certainly don't listen to each other. <laughs> and this is a show that's as much about listening as it is it is about talking. And I think I have a very unique opportunity because white people feel. Uh, they call it white fragility, I think is the word, Uh which basically means whenever somebody who is brown or black or from a different background or biracial brings up any issue related to bias or privilege, white people get defensive because you immediately feel like, oh my God, I'm, uh, you know, I'm the racist, I'm getting attacked. So people get defensive. Mm -hmm. And um, in order to grow as a human being, you got to learn how to stop being defensive and to actually listen Uh to somebody. And it doesn't mean that understanding that the impact of your behavior or the impact of the history of this country or the impact of certain laws or the impact of the way that money flows into certain communities and away from other communities, that nobody is pointing the finger at you and accusing you. They're asking you to listen and to understand and to acknowledge Uh the huge impact that slavery and the institutions around it has had in this country still hundreds of years later. And that when we bring that up, it's not to make, make anyone, anyone, anyone yes, it's to help people understand that there is factual data that points to the legacy and the decisions that had been made legally and in communities and around the funding of schools that directly impact people's opportunities right. and how they're treated today. And unless people start listening, particularly people of, that have privilege uh-huh. because of the pigment in their skin or lack thereof, um, that we won't change anything. And so one of the things that I hope that we can do with the Mel Robbins show is that I can be a vehicle because I'm always learning on the show. Uh-huh. I'm always learning where my own bias is. I'm always learning about um, how people of color are impacted. Um, you know, one of the interesting things that we covered on our show recently is when you look at, for example, um, the opioid addiction in this country, and you look at how it has exploded as a national epidemic, the main way that it is talked about is a white problem associated with prescription pills. Uh The truth is opioid addiction in African-American communities has been running rampant way before this. Why? The reason why is because there is so much toxic stress 
in underserved communities, Mm -hmm. when you're growing up without a two-parent household, when you're growing up in underserved schools, when you're growing up where there's crime and violence and poverty, that the toxic stress that kids feel growing up being on edge all the time um, and the fight or flight response and the trauma that so many kids face in their lives, the emotional trauma of being abandoned by a parent, the emotional trauma of sexual abuse, of physical abuse, of seeing drug abuse, of seeing people go to jail, that that creates a need to numb the pain. Uh-huh. And for a lot of people with privilege, you go see a psychiatrist and you get put on Prozac mm-hmm. and we're done. If you're in a community that doesn't have tutors or has one school counselor for mm-hmm. 600 kids and your mom's working three jobs, you know, how are you ever going to address the emotional pain that nobody talks about? And then you add on the stigma in a lot of communities of talking about mental health and mental wellness. And so we had an expert on from Washington, D.C., who has spent the last three decades helping the D.C. community. And he believes that 95 percent of the heroin addiction that's not talked about particularly in D.C., in the African-American community, is driven by unaddressed emotional pain. And you start numbing it with booze, you start mm-hmm. numbing it with, with weed, then you're reaching for something stronger, but the fundamental issue is something deep psychologically. Mm-hmm. And so that is at the heart of what this show is about. Yes, we're doing problems that are relatable. Yes, we'll do shows that are really fun. But in my mind... This is a lifeline for people to start thinking about their emotional well-being and thinking about what's happened to them. Now, what's wrong with you? Like, I never asked somebody that. I asked what happened to you that made you think these things. What happened to you that had you start to adopt this pattern of behavior? And so when you start to unpack that and you get to the root of the issue that somebody's struggling with, now you got a chance for somebody to change patterns. Mm -hmm. Now you got a chance to address the thing that's actually wrong instead of you know, complaining about the, the behavior you see. Yeah. I mean, that's true. And we talk about this back to what you talked about earlier a lot on here is listen to understand instead of to respond. Yes. And I think we all listen for the most part to what's my answer going to be? What's my rebuttal going to be? Instead of trying to understand what the other person is, is, is trying to tell you. You know, I think that if you're, you know, one thing you asked the question that I didn't really answer, which is like, what the <laughs> hell are we going to do about this massive issue that we have? Well, I think you did. We have to listen to each other about it. I really feel like the only avenue that we have, honestly, is schools. That the the most important thing that we could ever do in this country, and I don't see how we would ever get this done. I I hate (laughs) to think that me, the most positive person that you know, is so resigned. But I believe that when you look at the breakdown in the family structure that best supports kids, which is... Not, not to say anything wrong with being yeah. raised by a single parent, but when you talk about the realities of how challenging it is to be a parent today and how busy everybody is and how much information kids are getting too young, you know, thanks to the, the internet, um, I feel like the one shot that we have to help human beings be whole is to really look at what services schools provide and what is part of the curriculum in terms of the kinds of things that we're educating young, little human beings about. Uh Because they're not kids, they're going to be adults. And so you've got a chance from zero to uh, senior year in high school to really 
shape a human being and provide services that they may not be getting at home or in their communities. And so I see that as the one place that if we put some of our best minds, I mean, Tesla's now the most valued car company in the history of the world. They are what, less than a decade old, mm-hmm. six years old, maybe yeah, not, not even, old. Yeah. not even imagine if, you know, we took an initiative that Kennedy put on and was like, screw it, we're just going to go to the moon and we're going to make our best minds figure it out. Imagine if we said we're going to take our best minds from Silicon Valley and from the research triangle in the Carolinas and from the Boston intellectual mm-hmm. community in Chicago and everywhere. And we're going to reinvent schools. That's what we're going to do. I mean, it's unbelievable, the possibilities, but we've gotten so political and so into our camps that people have stopped listening and we've stopped thinking about what's possible and we're now arguing with each other about keeping things the way that they are and the way that I see it. And it's really sad. Mm -hmm. That's pretty profound. You've, uh, you know, how did you get to where you, how did you get to this point? What do you mean? In your life where you, you were, you're a lawyer by trade, by training, mm-hmm. you've done some radio. Mm-hmm. How did you get through the, to the point where you are, where you are? I think well, you, had a, you had a, some financial issues oh or God, yeah. yes. Um, you know, I think I've always been called to help people. Mm-hmm. So my dad was the, uh, first in his family. My parents are, my grandparents are Austrian immigrants Um, my grandmother, uh, grew up in a coal town in Ohio and then became a maid in New Jersey. Uh, and that's how she met my grandfather before he went to, into the Navy. They had a little bakery. My dad was the first one to go to college. He then went on to medical school and he built his own practice in a small town in Western Michigan, but he spent every Thursday doing surgeries in a rural area, three hours North. Mm -hmm. And my mom was super involved in service league. And I grew up in such a small town that I think when you grow up in a teeny, teeny town, there is nothing happening unless everybody gets involved. It is a volunteer fire department. It is, there's no football team unless everybody plays because we don't have enough kids in the town. You know what I'm saying? Like, and they can't fund anything unless you buy the fertilizer from the kids that are selling it. So Mm -hmm. there's just a civic minded, we're in this together thing that I just observed Mm -hmm. and helping giving advice and helping people. That's just something that I don't know, I've been naturally drawn to do. And so I've done it in so many areas of my life. I was a crisis intervention counselor on a domestic violence hotline in college. I was a public defender in Manhattan. Um, I have always been drawn towards connecting with people and understanding people and not from a place of being above, but just shoulder to shoulder interested in deeper connections. And so my trajectory really began 11 years ago. I've been sort of hobbling together different experiences from being a lawyer to dabbling in a crappy radio show to, um, being in the startup, the first dot com bubble in Boston, being in a tech company, um, on the content and marketing side. And I, um, 11 years ago, we hit rock bottom. I mean, my husband had had followed his dream of opening a pizza restaurant. Just let that... (laughs) Anybody that has a dream of opening a restaurant, first of all, has never worked in one. (laughs) Let me just be clear. Because I grew up working in restaurants 
and you know, uh, bussing tables and working the fry line. And I, I mean, everyone, there are a ton of people who have that dream, and I don't know why that's. I mean, it always it has a very romantic feel to it, but I don't know. Being surrounded by food, I think. Do you think that's what I don't know what or it is? Just yeah. making food for people is a, is a great thing that you want to feed Such people. Such a hard business. It is a hard road. Gosh. And so he, he, he came home, um, after getting fired from a job in high tech and was like, I can't do this anymore. I really can't put on a suit. I can't sell for somebody else. I, I ha I'm miserable. I hate my life. He was 39 years old. And he said, I, I have to pursue my dream. And I'm like, okay. I'm thinking to myself, uh, we've been married like dream 10 years. Yeah. This is the first time. Here. What is it? <laughs> and he says, I want to open a restaurant. And I look at him and I'm like, is there some trust fund around that I do not know about? <laughs> and so uh, to his credit, he and his best friend went around and raised some money and they opened a little joint and the first one was successful. And so what do you do in success? Oh, you go all in. So he took out a home equity line uh. and we got a bunch of credit cards and we uh, cashed out the kids' college savings and the 401k because what could possibly go wrong? Mm -hmm. We have one that works, and why would you ever want to give up the equity? And so we go all in, and then disaster hits. By the way, this all happened in 2008. Mm -hmm. Wonderful year for everybody here, yeah. right? Yep. And so um, the second restaurant was delayed by six months, wrong location. Within two weeks, they knew it. Third location, by the time they were starting to, uh, you know, renovate the space, they were out of money for it. So then they started factoring, which means you are now taking a loan by giving a percentage of every paycheck that comes in. Mm. Or not paycheck, but receipt. I mean, mm. horrible. Yeah. Spiraling out of control, $800,000 in debts. So the lien start hitting the house. So here I am, 41, 40 years old, three kids. We live in a nice neighborhood. Everybody else seems to have it together. Cars are about to be repossessed. We can't pay the mortgage. Um, Chris wasn't making any money. I was unemployed at this point. I mean, I didn't have money for groceries. I called my dad. I begged him to pay the mortgage. Like, it was absolutely horrible. Mm. And so my response to that crisis was to drink. <laughs> well, I mean, come yeah, on. I'm human. Me. Yeah. Right? Yeah. And so, because it's easier to numb yourself than to face it. Yeah. And I think that's what makes me so freaking powerful in this role is because I get it. I didn't read this stuff in a book. Mm -hmm. I get that it's hard. And so for six months, I was in the driver's seat of making my life go downhill. And we were about to lose everything and I could barely get out of bed. And it was at that moment that life was testing me. I had this, this, and I believe you change your life with one decision. Mm -hmm. I believe that's how it happens. And so I was sitting in my house. It was a Tuesday night in February and, um, 11 years ago. And I was giving myself a pep talk. I'm like, all right, that's it. Tomorrow, it's the new me. I have got to, I've got to stop drinking. I've got to get a job. I've got to be nice to Chris. I've got to start telling my friends what's going on. Like, I got to get these kids to school. And a, a rocket ship blasted across the television screen, and it gave me this idea. I thought, oh my God, that's it. Tomorrow morning, instead of lying in bed and letting the depression and the anxiety set in, what if I launched myself out of bed? What if I moved so fast that? I beat the anxiety and the depression. Now I had had four Manhattans that night. Mm -hmm. So that's probably what gave me that idea. Yeah. Um, cause it sounds kind of stupid, doesn't it? <laughs> but the next morning I'll never forget. I woke up with a tremendous hangover. The alarm goes off. I immediately remember I should get up. I remember the rocket launch. And then here's the thing that is so true for every human being. There's a five second moment of hesitation that defines your life. 
Five second window. A five second window that defines your relationships. <laughs> it defines whether you're in shape. It defines whether you have a drinking problem. Because within a five second window, you know what you should do and then you think about it. And if you think about it for five seconds or longer, you're not doing it. Mm-hmm. It becomes a habit to blow things off. But if you move within that five second window. Hold on, back up. I yep. know this is your whole thesis and your, your, your book and everything, but you're going to have to break that down. There's a lot in that five yes. seconds. Yes. So, so here's, you have an instinct and yes. you know, I should do X, X, whatever X is. Yes. And then in, within five seconds, you talk yourself out of it and that's when you've. Yes, and there's so much science. Yeah, that's why this five-second window is so powerful because your brain has two modes. Mm -hmm. Your brain has a mode of running on autopilot, which is habits and patterns. So if you doubt yourself, that's a habit. If you procrastinate, that's a habit. If you drink too much, that's a habit. If you reach for the shampoo with your right hand in the shower, that's a habit. The basal ganglia, which is the interior part of your brain, drives all that behavior without you even thinking. It's a pattern. The other part of the brain is the drive mode. That's when you're in control. That's your prefrontal cortex right beneath your forehead. That's the part that aches when you take a test because you're making your brain focus on what you're doing. Your brain shifts gears all day long between patterns and focus. And so in five seconds or less, your brain drifts into a pattern mode. So in the, so I believe that everybody knows what they should do. Uh-huh in order to be healthier, happier, improve their marriage. The advice part's easy. Just Google it. (laughs) That's what you should do. The hard part is making yourself do it when you don't feel like it or when you have a pattern that is the opposite of that. Uh And so the five-second window, this is where the science comes in. It's called... um, there's If you look at all the, the research around habits or the research around neuroscience... Um, there's a whole field of study called metacognition. Metacognition is, is a fancy word that means there are little tricks you can use to, to uh, trick your own mind. Uh-huh. And the five-second rule happens to be a form of metacognition. It is classified as a starting ritual. A starting ritual is something that you use intentionally, like a trigger, uh, to start a new behavior. So when you count backwards... Five, four, three, two, one. Let's use the example of the snooze alarm because everybody can relate. That's actually what I was thinking of. Yeah. So <laughs> I wake up and I decide in that two seconds whether to hit the snooze alarm or not. Correct. Okay. And so you know that you should get up. You probably know all the reasons why you should get up. You know all the benefits. But when you hesitate and you start to think, do I feel like it? It's cold. It's dark. I don't want to. I'm tired. Maybe I'll sleep 15 more minutes. Whatever it may be. When you start to think, your mind drifts into the pattern mode. And the pattern then is to hit the snooze button. And so that's become a habit. And so in order to change your behavior, you have to interrupt the pattern. And the five-second rule, counting backwards, just yourself, five, four, three, two, one, is a tool based in science that interrupts the patterns you're trying to change. And so what you do, and this is why pediatricians use it around the world. This is why veterans organizations now are using it to help vets with PTSD because post-traumatic stress is, um, whether it's caused by emotional trauma or it's caused by some sort of trauma that you experienced or witnessed, that's about triggers. So there's something that happened to you that your nervous system remembers. So a lot of vets talk about loud noises 
or they talk about being in rooms and needing to sit near the door or whatever that may be. It's because their nervous system remembers a moment Uh that was life or death where a loud noise happened and it was life or death moment. And so your nervous system remembers that shit to keep you alive. The problem is when you come back to a civilian life and there aren't bombs going off Uh here and a loud noise goes off, intellectually you know, but your nervous system is still hardwired to protect you. And so for PTSD, the reason why the five-second rule is so effective with other therapies is because if a loud noise happens, your nervous system goes crazy, but if we train you to go five, four, three, two, one, it pulls your mind back into focus and keeps it out of the pattern of going, fuck, what's happening, oh my God, and escalating it. So isn't it cool? You literally have to count... Yeah, count backwards, five, four, three, two, one, because when you first start doing it, it's not a habit yet. Right. And so in the beginning, it's an intentional interruption of a pattern you want to change. As you start repeating five, four, three, two, one, it now becomes a new habit, which Mm -hmm. is the second you you decide you're going to count, you're immediately in control of what you're doing. You can lower, if you snap at your spouse, five, four, three, two, one, immediately pulls you back in. If you have road rage, five, four, three, two, one, immediately pulls you back in. If you drink too much, five, four, three, two, one, interrupts the reaching for the mm-hmm. alcohol. I have very bad ADD and I was working, um, can't remember, oh, I was writing a newsletter and I could see my inbox <laughs> and I literally could see myself drifting there because it's a pattern. I'm like, nope, five, I don't even have to count. The second I even just go yeah. no and I start to feel myself thinking mm-hmm. about it, I redirect my mind. Yeah. I use it a lot for negative thoughts. So when you start to doubt yourself, when I see myself getting caught up, you know, this whole having a talk show is really interesting because I'm not a big celebrity person. This is not for me. The worst part about all of this is the piece about celebrity or fame or being known. Mm -hmm. Um, And I, I, my husband's like, we're moving to Vermont. Like you can be down (laughs) in New York, but we're in the hell out of Boston. You got to get somewhere rural. Um, and it's interesting to be in this machine with ratings mm-hmm. and with publicity because everybody suffers FOMO. It's just relative. And so I use it a lot because I'll see shows with way more resources that have been on for 20 years. And I'm like, shit, I'm so behind. And then I'm like, what in the hell did you just say to yourself? You're not in a race against somebody else. You got to keep yourself focused on what you're doing 100%. and who you're serving, but it's human nature. Yeah, you don't win by following somebody else. Yes. You find your own path. But I use it to redirect myself. Mm-hmm. I use it to, when I feel myself getting attached or bitchy or to just get control of myself so that I'm acting in a way that's in control and that is aligned with my values mm-hmm. rather than being subject to my own emotional trauma or my own patterns that I can't stand, so. BP added more than $70 billion to the U.S. economy in 2022 by making investments from coast to coast. Investments like building charging hubs for fleets of electric buses in California and starting up new infrastructure in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. Okay, you say uh, finding your passion is the worst advice yeah. you could ever take. Yeah, Here's why. Um, <laughs> look, I'm a self-help author. Yes. I am also an internet marketer. So I understand 
the the clickbait and the the that's the, a good one yeah you don't know? follow your passion that's not right. what you said actually and, and you really said people, it's why it's a bad advice yeah, and people market to finding your passion because mm-hmm. people want to find their passion and here's why this is such an important topic passion is not a thing passion is not a person passion is not a place i love this passion is not something you're doing passion is something you feel as you're doing things it's an emotion yes and so i say follow your passion is terrible advice because people immediately go to i gotta find the needle in the haystack Mm -hmm. am i supposed to be a yoga instructor in bali or am i getting a food truck and i'm doing like oh Mm -hmm. i should be a reality like you know they think it's a thing if only I lived in Monterey and I had a little fishing boat, then it, then it, no, that's not it. So let's deconstruct what passion actually means. Passion is an, is an energy that you feel. If somebody says, I'm so passionate about being a talk show host, or I'm so passionate about being a dad, you know what that means? That means that when you're doing that thing or thinking about it, you're expansive, you're energized, you're excited about what you're doing. Doesn't mean it's easy. But there's an energy to it. And so find your passion is terrible advice. Follow the passion. It's okay. I prefer to say when people feel lost, I immediately say, well, tell me about the things that energize you. Tell me about the things that you would get out of bed for because you just love to do them. It's not the same advice as what would you do if you couldn't make any money? You know, like. (laughs) And so then when you can get somebody to say, I love Um, like here, I'll give you a story, another story. So when I was really stuck, I don't know, 20 years ago after practicing law and I didn't know what I wanted to do next, I thought I'd always dreamt of like maybe having my own little bakery only because my grandparents had a bakery. And so I thought maybe having a little bakery in a coffee shop would be amazing. And the thought of it energized me. And I dreamt, you know, I would dream like being behind the counter and, you know, hey guys, how you doing? Uh, Jason, you know, you want the usual value, you want the usual, okay, here we go. Um, And so that was my first clue. What energizes you? Uh The second thing I want you to do is I want you to explore it. So I got a uh, job on the weekends. I still had a job, you know, this was in the dot-com era, but I got a job on Saturday mornings working in this coffee shop that had wonderful muffins And it took me about 32 minutes (laughs) of being there. This is not for me. And restocking the napkins Uh and smelling like carrot muffins. Someone yelling at you because you got your coffee order wrong. Yeah. And, you know, then somebody barking at you to realize, actually, this is not what I'm passionate about. (laughs) What was it? So, so here's the thing. Is that a failure? No, that's a clue. Yeah, that's definitely, that's a a clue. That's a lesson. So here's what I learned. Why I thought I wanted a bakery is because I like being in one. Mm. And I like... You like baked goods. Yes, and I like the feel of sitting in a coffee shop. And I love the community aspect of walking in and being known. Uh And I like the flexibility in my schedule of knowing that I could walk into one and have a little bit of time to sit and read the paper or talk to somebody in there that's in there every morning. And that I had the financial ability to spend money doing that. Uh-huh. Those were the clues that I needed that made me go, oh, it's not about owning this thing. It's about the flexibility. It's about being known and being friendly with mm-hmm. people. It's about something else. I need to bring those pieces that I just learned that energize me to the next thing I'm going to be exploring. That's fascinating. That's great. Because the yeah. truth is, you know, like I also feel like we talked about this early. This is coming full circle to the quote. 
that you're not ever failing at anything. You're gaining experience and knowledge about yourself. Mm-hmm. And that everything is leading to something else. Do I dream of having the Mel Robbins show be the number one show in daytime in the United States? You better believe I do. Mm-hmm. And I am a competitive motherfucker and I am going to do <laughs> nothing. That I'm going to do everything that I can to make that a reality because I know that if we're number one, it means we have the reach and the impact that I am on a mission to make in people's lives. But if we don't achieve that, it doesn't matter. Mm. That's not the point. Mm -hmm. Because I know that the reason why I show up every day and put a thousand percent into what I'm doing is because I'm meant to learn something or meet somebody or gain an experience or a failure that is preparing me for something 20 years from now that I can't even envision. And when you live your life that way, it allows you to not get so attached to the results that are happening on a day-to-day basis. Right. That's fantastic. Yeah. Mel Robbins show. Watch it every day on KTLA. Dear God, tune in, 4 <laughs> p.m., please. And, and all across the country, yes. right? Check, yeah. your, check your local listings, as, as they say. Uh, I would encourage everyone to follow you on Instagram, too, at please. Mel Robbins. Yes, you know, and the got- show is Mel Robbins Show all over social. But, yeah, we're reaching millions and millions every day. We put out tons of content every day. It's free. And it's it's great content. I did want to talk quickly about the decade, uh, oh. best decade ever before we go. 117,000 people in an online course I'm leading right now. Wow. Wow. Yeah. yeah. As we start twenty, the twenties. Yeah. So the whole course is about the uh, science around dreaming, not like sleeping and dreaming, but the fact that it's so important to retrain yourself about how to dream and not be embarrassed by it. Yeah, and and not so that you can achieve them, but because if you if you think about it, when we're kids, we're super curious and we're dreaming all the time. We've got all these huge uh, imaginary things that are going on. And then you start to get into school and the average kid is told to form a no 400 times a day. (laughs) And so the way you think starts to shrink. And I believe that if you allow yourself to dream over the course of a decade, like if you think about it, Facebook, Instagram, all these things weren't even really around. Uh, Venmo, Lyft, Mm -hmm. Uber, not around. Square card, not around. Um, Smartphones, not around 10 years ago. You can't even imagine the way that the world is going to change. But if you can train yourself to, let, to, to identify those limiting beliefs that either keep you too embarrassed or too ashamed or feeling unworthy to dream super big, all kinds of stuff starts to open up in your life. And so we're in the week, the week one of the course. You can still go to it. Just go to melrobbins.com slash best decade. Um, and I'm training you that you're, you don't even know what your dreams are uh-huh. because you're only allowing yourself to think about the things that you think might be possible. Uh-huh. And I want you to, the first step is to think even bigger beyond these limitations. And then the next week we get into how you then, we're going to pick one and turn it into your theme for this year. Mm. And then all the stuff we just talked about around follow what energizes you, become an explorer and start collecting data about yourself and about this thing that you think you're interested in. And then week three is about the people that you surround yourself with. Because so many of us are surrounded by people that, you know, for better or for worse, they don't mean to, but they're not helping you dream bigger. And when you start to dream bigger, it becomes very confronting to them. 
And so it's really important when you think about your own growth, who are the five that you've identified that support that? You don't even have, they can be people online. I have a group of five people that um, I've only met once that we, uh, in person, but we Zoom twice a year. And they're the people that hold me accountable for thinking even bigger than I ever would. Wow. And and so that's what this course is teaching you to do in your own life. All right. The 20s, Bobby. That's best really decade cool. ever. Let's that's enroll. Right. That's Why not? Good, yeah. Why the hell not? Yeah. Right? Let's do it. You deserve it. Thank if you, you so do much. The work. Yeah. Thank you, guys. Thanks for hanging awesome. out with us. Tune in. Tune Come in. on, everybody. The Mel Robbins Show. <laughs>